Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And it's time for the tech news for Tuesday, September 21st, 2021. And here's a follow-up on a story that I talked about last week. The Wall Street Journal has recently published a few stories that put Facebook in a really negative light. Uh, One of those stories was about an internal study that looked at how divisive content on Facebook goes up in the ranks in the Facebook algorithm because that kind of content encourages high engagement. So essentially it's saying what most of us already know, which is that if you stir Shinola up, folks will get head up about it and join the fracas. Now that's my colloquial way of saying that You know, saying or posting awful things gets a rise out of people and they in turn get emotional and typically they then engage. And we know this is a thing because it's been going on since long before there ever was an Internet. And even back in the days when the Internet wasn't really much more than a bunch of message boards, we saw this in the form of flame wars. Like, everybody knows this. This is like the basis of a lot of toxic behavior on the Internet and in the world in general. So none of this is new, but the study essentially confirmed that Facebook's algorithm promotes content like that and then amplifies it. So something that was already getting a lot of engagement could go to the level where it goes viral. And when that stuff is divisive, it can do a lot of harm. Then there was the study that I talked about last week in which Facebook researchers found that Instagram users can experience a negative impact on their mental health, particularly teenage girls are are, uh, vulnerable to this. And the researchers found that some users, including up to 32% of teenage girls, experience self-esteem issues and worse, and that this links back to their activities on Instagram. But those stories weren't the, the end of it. There was more. The journal also published a report that said, As bad as Facebook is at dealing with these issues in English-speaking countries, it's even worse elsewhere. And that's because, apparently, Facebook just doesn't have the staff on hand to deal with problems in places that have other languages. And so issues like misinformation campaigns can be even worse in those other places because there aren't enough moderators who can curb the problem. There are not enough people who understand the language to recognize when those things are happening. CNBC's Salvador Rodriguez points out that a company that makes around $30 billion in profit, and that's not revenue, that's profit, you know, they might be able to actually hire on some folks who understand other languages. And I think that's a pretty salient point. Facebook has responded in a blog post that essentially says the Wall Street Journal got stuff wrong. However, the blog post does not refute any of the points of the internal study that the journal was citing. So, I mean, I guess the wrong stuff would be any conclusions that the journalists were drawing as a result of reading over the data. Uh, I'm not sure that that blog post is going to convince anyone. I feel like there's a real momentum building against Facebook. And my guess is that soon it's going to be politically unfeasible to offer the company any sort of protection. In related news, the MIT Technology Review gained possession of another Facebook internal study. These things just keep on coming out. This one was actually done way back in 2019. I say way back because 2019 was before we ever had a pandemic. Do you remember those days? Anyway, 
That study was looking into the proliferation of troll farms that were dedicated to spreading misinformation and propaganda in the lead up to the 2020 presidential election in the United States. A former Facebook employee handed the report over to the MIT Technology Review. That employee reportedly had nothing to do with the uh, the study, but had access to it before they left Facebook. And the study showed that troll farms were pushing content out that was seen by around 140 million Americans every month, and that these troll farms had created networks of Facebook pages, and that some 15,000 pages targeting U.S. audiences actually originated out of Kosovo and Macedonia. Now, keep in mind, this is after Facebook had already been through the ringer in the 2016 election, which means you would expect Facebook to have some protections in place to guard against the same sort of thing happening again just a few years later. But according to the review, the few measures that Facebook did activate mostly prevented, quote, the worst of the worst, end quote. Jeff Allen, author of the report and who was at the time a senior level data scientist with Facebook, said that, quote, we have empowered inauthentic actors to accumulate huge followings for largely unknown purposes, end quote. So in other words, Facebook has given the ability for people who are not who they claim to be to get enormous followings and then potentially to do, you know, whatever. It might be good or it might be bad, probably bad. So this ties in with our earlier story showing that Facebook is very much aware of how its systems enable bad actors to reach huge audiences and spread misinformation. When that misinformation convinces people that, you know, the COVID vaccine is harmful or that misinformation says the virus itself is overblown, then it not just, you know, affects those users on Facebook, it affects their behaviors and people can get sick and some of them will die. Facebook, as you would imagine, has representatives that say say the company is taking measures to keep the platform safe and to eliminate these issues. But like I said, I feel that Facebook is pretty much on a collision course with the U.S. government and likely some other governments around the world with the aim to break up the company or otherwise reduce its power to facilitate harm. I mean, it is pretty damning evidence when internal studies within Facebook are confirming some of the accusations that people have had against the company. And meanwhile, representatives for the company have continuously denied or deflected those accusations. Meanwhile, their own studies from inside the house are saying the same thing. Not a good look. A few weeks ago, I talked about how El Salvador adopted Bitcoin as their the country's national currency. Uh, previously, it had been mostly reliant on the U.S. dollar. Well, recently, Bitcoin has had a bit of a dip. It dropped 10% in value very quickly, not long ago. It's not to say that it's in a spiral or anything, but it did have a dip. And Salvadoran President Nayib Bukele responded to that by directing the government to purchase even more Bitcoin, buying the dip, in other words. Uh, the country purchased another 150 Bitcoin, which was worth around $6.5 million at the time. And that brings the total number of Bitcoin held by El Salvador to 700. It will be interesting to see how El Salvador progresses while relying on a currency that has frequent and frequently dramatic fluctuations in value. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's going to be tricky. Uh, if Bitcoin stabilizes and becomes more of a reliant kind of thing or reliable kind of thing, um, yeah, I guess it could work. But right now it's just, it's so volatile 
that I am very curious to see how this works for El Salvador in the future. And of course, we talked in, in the previous episodes about how a lot of critics are worried that the fact that Bitcoin is is frequently associated with stuff like money laundering and corruption, that this will play a large role in El Salvador as well. But we'll have to wait and see. Let's talk about tech and climate change for a second. So the big five, that being Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, and Facebook, have all stated that their respective companies have plans to go carbon neutral, and at least in some cases, even carbon negative over the next several years, most of which are aiming around 2030 for that goal. Microsoft even says that the company intends to remove enough carbon from the atmosphere to offset all the carbon the company has ever generated, ever. So in other words, by I think it's 2050, Microsoft plans on having systems in place that will effectively remove the equivalent amount of carbon that the company has ever produced. That's pretty phenomenal if it actually works out. Now, let's talk a little bit about actions because those speak louder than words, right? You can claim to have this plan in place, but unless you do stuff about it, it doesn't do you much good. And when it comes to some of these companies, the promises being made might not actually be achievable, at least not from the companies themselves all by themselves. Uh, let's take Apple, for example. So The Guardian reports that a semiconductor manufacturing company called TSMC, this is part of Apple's supply chain, has its goal to become carbon neutral by 2050. Now, Apple's goal was to get its entire supply chain to carbon neutral by 2030. So there's a disconnect there of 20 years. I mean, that's huge, right? Now, the company, TSMC, in Taiwan uses nearly 5% of all electricity in Taiwan while manufacturing silicon chips. It also used around 63 million gallons of water in 2019 for that purpose. And it will likely consume more over the near future, not less, at least, you know, when the ability to manufacture at scale has really returned in full effect. And this is yet another reminder that the world is way more complicated than the way we typically see it in messaging. You know, you might think, oh, Apple, Apple makes iPhones. That iPhone came from Apple. But we all know that's oversimplifying things way too much because there are a lot of different companies that uh, that produce components within that iPhone that are not Apple. Apple partners with those companies. They are part of Apple's supply chain. So it is a much more complex ecosystem than just a single company. And we have to remember there's this ripple effect, right? The manufacturing process has this ripple effect on different economies around the world, as well as different environments. Now, I am not blaming Apple for this because, I mean, for one thing, the company made its own uh, owned and operated businesses carbon neutral back in 2018. That is amazing. Hats off to Apple for doing that. That's great. This is just a reminder that when we hear these promises about attaining carbon neutrality across all lines of businesses, we have to remember it's not always entirely up to the companies that are making those promises. And we need to make sure that all the pieces are in place in order to take care of all the different components. We have more to talk about with tech, even more with tech and climate in just a moment. But first, let's take a quick break. Okay, before the break, I was talking about carbon neutrality and climate change and tech. This is kind of related to that 
in a way. Uh, I want to talk about the Bezos Earth Fund. That's obviously named after Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon. That fund has pledged $1 billion toward efforts to conserve and protect vulnerable areas around the world. And this is part of a $10 billion commitment that Jeff Bezos has made toward preserving natural habitats and fighting climate change uh, globally. And the initial focus is on a region in the Pacific Ocean, a tropical region of the Pacific, uh, the tropical Andes Mountains, and the Congo Basin. Now, you might wonder, how does this actually work? Because obviously you can't just dump airplane loads of cash on an area to make it better. The Pacific Ocean does not care if you make it rain dollar bills over it. No, so this fund is actually doling out large amounts of money toward established organizations that focus on this kind of work, on preservation and fighting climate change. So really, it's almost like a grant foundation that's granting this money to other organizations. This in itself is still a challenge, both because even if you're just donating to charity yourself, you always want to try and select organizations that have the potential to do the most good with your donation and to make the best use of the money you you offer. And also, once you hit a certain scale of donation, you might actually be giving an organization more money than that organization can manage. It can literally be too much of a good thing. Uh, if you are really focusing on smaller, more local organizations that can do you know, direct good in a region, then you might have to spend a lot more time managing that whole situation. Because again, you don't want to overwhelm the organization by giving it more than it can handle. But at least this is some good news that's related to Amazon, which is nice because the rest of my Amazon news is not quite so positive. One of those pieces is about um, sponsored results in Amazon item listings. So when you go onto Amazon and you're searching for something, let's say it's a ball peen hammer, then you're going to get results on that. And that's going to include results from companies that have paid to be in your view, like on that first page. So Amazon's been doing this for a while. It's not like it's brand new, but over time, the company has increased the number of sponsored item slots on those initial lists. Like in the past, it might be, you know, two to three items, and now it can be five or six on some searches. Uh, and like search engines in general, you know, we typically see people stick to the first page or first couple of pages of results when they're searching for stuff. Now, I have to admit, I'm kind of an outlier because I will frequently page through multiple pages in an effort to find, you know, the best fit for whatever item I'm looking for. I've always got this fear that, on the next page was the perfect fit. And I went with something, you know, I settled for something less. So uh, with these sponsored results, there's no algorithm around how popular the item is or how well reviewed it is or anything like that. It shows up there because a company paid for that spot. And Amazon has also increased the price for ads, which Man, I don't even know how much revenue Amazon must be pulling in when you factor both of those things together. They're showing more ads and they're charging more per ad. And they've got millions of people using the site. And I mean, that's going hog wild, especially during pandemic. Now, uh, the amount charged is not a big amount on a per click basis. If you look at it as how much does uh, Amazon charge for an ad for a single click, it's $1.27. That's not very much, but that's one click. That's per click, right? 
you multiply that times potentially tens of thousands of clicks and you apply that pricing across all items, across all categories, and you really start seeing the cash pile up, which I guess then you could throw at the Pacific Ocean. Amazon, by the way, says that it doesn't dedicate slots to sponsored items. So in other words, it doesn't have like a minimum or a set amount. It's not like every time you search for something, you're going to get six sponsored results and then everything else. In fact, it's possible, according to Amazon, that you could do a search and get no sponsored items at all, depending on whatever it was you were searching for. Now, I've recently had to purchase a bunch of stuff. So anecdotally, I can say that I have noticed way more sponsored items than I remember seeing in the past. However, I also have to say that could just be confirmation bias on my part. It might not actually reflect reality. It may just be that I'm noticing it more. Anyway, it's good to pay attention to this kind of thing when you're comparison shopping. Now, just because something is sponsored doesn't mean it's the best fit, but it also doesn't mean it's not the best fit. It might be the best option for you, but it is good to remember that it's a sponsored item and that the reason it's showing up in your view has nothing to do with its price, its quality or reviews or anything like that. Uh, it may fit those criteria that you need, but it doesn't necessarily do that. So you need to keep that in mind when you're comparison shopping. OSHA aka the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, is a regulatory agency in the United States that is charged with assuring safe and healthy working conditions in the U.S. by establishing and enforcing standards. And when there is uh, an incident that that results in an injury, like a serious injury, something you know beyond just slapping a Band-Aid on someone, then companies are supposed to report that to OSHA. They are legally bound to do so. Well, the tech journalism site The Information took data from OSHA and looked at Amazon delivery stations. Now, delivery stations are hubs that exist between warehouses and customers. Amazon essentially established delivery stations largely in an effort to eliminate the need to rely on other delivery services like UPS and instead use its own owned and operated uh, delivery vehicles in order to get packages to end customers. So the way Amazon typically works with shipping is that it has these massive warehouses that hold products. These then get shipped to the delivery stations and then workers at the delivery stations sort and load the boxes onto delivery vehicles, which then go out to you know deliver the stuff to customers. And according to the information, the rate of injuries at Amazon delivery stations is more than twice that of the industry average. People are getting hurt twice as often at Amazon delivery stations as people who work at comparable facilities. It's also a higher injury rate than what is seen at other Amazon facilities, including warehouses and sorting facilities. The delivery stations are the most dangerous. The information also points out that companies only report to OSHA if those injuries are severe enough. Like I was saying before, it has to be something more than what would require a first aid response. So we're not just talking about people stubbing a toe or something. We're talking about some serious injuries, everything from moderate to potentially critical injuries. And, you know, who knows how many bumps and scrapes people are getting along the way. The study also found that Amazon had overstated the number of employees working at these delivery stations on more than 100 occasions. Now, that matters because it means Amazon's information to OSHA indicates 
that these delivery stations had more employees, thus were more fully staffed. And that would usually mean that you would see fewer injuries, right? Because you're you're dividing the work well amongst the people that you have. But if in fact fewer people are working there, then that means you have fewer people doing more work. And that work includes moving heavy stuff like heavy packages, as well as working around delivery vehicles that are coming and going all the time. So it's no wonder there have been lots of injuries. No real report from Amazon yet about this, apart from the company saying that it works hard to improve safety conditions in its facilities. Okay, well, I've got a few more stories to cover, but before I get to those, let's take another quick break. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit more about workers' rights and tech organizations in the form of Instacart. So the company is rumored to be preparing an initial public offering, or IPO. That's when a private company becomes a publicly traded company on a stock exchange. The This process is lengthy. It is not a sure thing. They just take a look at WeWork for an example of that. But some Instacart workers are spearheading a campaign to convince users to boycott the app. They're using the hashtag delete Instacart to promote their cause. So they want to put pressure on the company. If Instacart is planning on going public, then public opinion is going to impact the share price and thus the company valuation and the IPO. So this is important stuff. And the workers have a list of demands that they want to have met from the company. One of those includes Instacart reinstating a previous commission pay model where people got a dedicated amount of money per order. Um, They want a 10% default tip built into the transaction. Right now, the default tip is at 5%. They want it to be upped to 10% because they say a lot of users never bother to go outside of the default. Uh, I always always go to 20% at least, and sometimes over than that, because, I mean these folks are working hard and they're they're doing a real service for me but that's me anyway they also want a system that does not penalize workers for stuff that is outside their control so for example uh there's a cold brew coffee that i absolutely love and it is almost never in stock in any of the stores i always put it into the order just in case but more often than not i get a message saying they were out well right now instacart allows me to review my you know, results of my delivery. And I can say, oh, the the delivery person didn't find all the items. Uh, And that can reflect badly on that person. It penalizes the Instacart gig worker. And it's not really their fault, right? I mean, if the the company's out of stock, they couldn't do anything about that. So it's not fair. They want that changed. They also want occupational death benefits. And they want the system that assigns orders to workers to be more transparent. They say that it's gotten less so over the years. The workers are asking users to delete the app to send a message to Instacart because if the install base for the app drops dramatically, they hope that that will end up pressuring the company to granting these demands because it will not look good on its way toward an initial public offering. Uh, Workers say Instacart's changes have resulted in lower pay for workers who are working just as hard, if not harder, than they were before, but they're making less. The workers acknowledge that asking users to delete a delivery app during a pandemic is potentially a pretty big request. Uh, For what it's worth, I just deleted it from my phone, even though I have depended upon it quite heavily in the past. 
because I happen to believe in the cause of the workers. All right, moving on. Have you been to Thailand in the last 10 years? The reason I ask is that if you have, your data might be among the 106 million records of international travelers who have gone to Thailand that was found to be stored on a database on the web without password protection. So in other words, anyone who got hold of that URL to that database could go and look through it and see the personal information of 106 million people who had visited the country over the last decade. A security researcher with Comparatech alerted Thai authorities about this problem last month, and the day following that alert, those authorities were able to secure the database. So how long was that database up? I don't know. But the search engine Census, C-E-N-S-Y-S, indexed the database on August 20th, 2021. So in other words, not only was the database unprotected and up on the web, but a search engine indexed it. So that means it would come up in search results for any sort of relevant query. The researcher who found the database found it two days after it had been indexed. And on the 23rd, the database was under lock and key. The former URL of the database is still active, but if you were to visit it now, you would see a message that reads, and I quote, this is honeypot, all access were logged, end quote. According to the authorities, no one obtained unauthorized access to the database, though I'm not sure how they determined that or whether the information is accurate. But once again, that shows how poor data management security policies can make all of us vulnerable. The folks who were in that database did nothing wrong. At least they did nothing wrong as far as being included on that database is concerned. I don't know if they're entirely innocent of all wrongdoing, but they had no control over the security of their own data. And that's a problem. Netflix has an interesting new offering that has very specific parameters. Uh, for a certain target audience, viewers will get free access to about 25% of all the content on Netflix streaming to watch free of charge. That is, there's no subscription, there's no advertising, nothing. But there are a couple of requirements you have to meet first. One is that this offering is for Android users, so it only applies on Android devices. And the other is that the offering is for people in Kenya. And you might wonder, what the what? What's going on? And maybe a lot of you are already saying, well, of course, the first taste is free. And that's exactly right. This is essentially a marketing campaign with the ultimate goal to be to convince Kenyans to subscribe to, for, you know, paid for Netflix services. You know, you give them a sample of what is available on the platform. Android smartphones are popular in Kenya, often like the most popular computing device in Kenya. And so that represents a potential new audience for Netflix. But to get things rolling, the company needs to convince Kenyans that they want the service in the first place. And I figure we're going to see lots of similar campaigns across different companies in different parts of the world. Many companies use growth as the most important metric of the organization's success. But for subscription-based businesses, there comes a point in any market where you start to hit saturation and you see growth slow down. You might even see it stabilize. And if you're in trouble, it might start to go in reverse. It is very hard to create new customers in a saturated market. You know, you pretty much got everyone who wants to be on the service on the service. You got nowhere else to go. So it makes more sense to look for untapped markets elsewhere in the world and then aggressively go after those. And when you do that, boom, you get your growth back. Now, I used to see this a lot when I worked for a multi-billion dollar cable content company that rhymes with Rediscovery. 
anyway, we'll have to see if Netflix's Queen's Gambit pays off. That was a reference. I've been talking a lot about NASA recently with series on tech stuff dedicated to things like the evolution of spacesuits and the various space stations that have been in orbit around the Earth over the years. And I've also covered the Artemis project, NASA's plan to return to the moon. Now, while the return of humans to the moon is likely to be pushed back from the planned 2024 deadline because of stuff like, you know, not having spacesuits ready in time, other parts of the project are moving forward. One of those is to land a new rover on the surface of the moon. The rover is called the Volatile Investigating Polar Exploration Rover, or VIPER. Now that tells me someone came up with an acronym that they thought was totally badass, and then they worked their way backward from there. Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they came up with the full name first, and then they said, hang on, the acronym for this name is VIPER. That's badass. Anyway, NASA has identified the target landing spot for the rover. It's near the south pole of the moon on the edge of a crater called the Nobile Crater. And Viper's mission will be to seek out resources that could be useful, you know, some might say critical, for long-term moon missions. We're talking stuff like ice, which could be used to generate not just water, but also oxygen and even rocket fuel. Uh, this will mark the first time that anything has directly explored that specific region of the moon. Previously, we've studied it only through flyby missions where, you know, satellites have gone by and taken measurements and metrics and pictures and stuff. But this will be the first time we'll have wheels on the ground, so to speak, in that region. The thought is that in areas that are in permanent shadow on the moon, you might be able to find ice. But we won't know for sure until we go there. Viper is scheduled to go loony in 2023. And finally, in other space news, pooping in space is difficult. I've covered this extensively. Some might even say gratuitously in those tech stuff episodes about spacesuits. But recently, this has popped into the news again thanks to the crew of the Inspiration4. That was the group of four non-astronauts who boarded a SpaceX Crew Dragon spacecraft last Wednesday, went into orbit, stayed there for a few days, and then returned back to Earth this past weekend. Elon Musk, responding to questions about the mission, said that the next Crew Dragon space capsule would have, quote, an upgraded toilet, end quote, because, and I quote, we had some challenges with it this flight. Now, you might wonder where the toilet is on the Crew Dragon capsule. And I'll tell you, it's located above the crew seats. It's on the ceiling. Now, in microgravity, up and down are largely meaningless. But it does mean that to use the toilet, you'd have to float up to the top of the capsule, position yourself so that you are upside down with regard to the bottom of the capsule, and position yourself on the toilet, and you use a little privacy curtain that divides the capsule so that, you know, you're not turning it into a spectator sport. And then uh, you are inside a glass dome once you are you know, positioned on the toilet, and then you would do your business. Oh, what a feeling when you're pooping on the ceiling. I made myself laugh when I thought that up, which tells you that I might be 46 years old, but I'm still a 13-year-old boy at heart. Anyway, the next Dragon Capsule will have an improved toilet, and I cannot wait to learn what the heck that actually means. 
And that's it. That's the news for Tuesday, September 21st, 2021. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover on tech stuff, reach out to me on Twitter. The handle for the show is tech stuff HSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 